what you think of that? That was cool, huh? <laughs> John chapter 9 this morning. Good to see you all again. There was a, a true story of a newspaper reporter who standing outside a toy store one time watching three little girls come out of the toy store. And one of them was blind, and the other two were trying hard to describe the toys that they had seen in the store to that blind girl, and they were having a difficult time with it. The girl that was blind was getting frustrated, having never seen the toys before, trying to picture in her mind what they must have been like. Well, the reporter took notice of the scene. Of course, it touched his heart. And he decided he would include the scene in an article that he was going to write for the local newspaper. Well, the day that that article appeared in the local newspaper, he just so happened to be scheduled to be attending a D.L. Moody evangelistic crusade. But of course, his intention for attending the crusade was to pick apart the evangelist, to pick on the evangelist, and to write a scathing report in the newspaper about what the evangelist was up to. But as it just so happens to be, that night in the middle of D.L. Moody's message, he referenced the story that he had read in the local newspaper that that reporter had written. And he referenced that story as a means to illustrate how difficult it is to explain the things of God to someone who is spiritually blind. To explain the things of God to someone who had never seen them before. To someone who had never experienced those things in his life before. And once again, that man was touched by God and he went forward that night to receive Christ. What's fascinating about that story is that this reporter was so easily able to identify the obvious need in the little girl. She was blind. It was harder for him to see the need that he had, that he was spiritually blind, as is always the case. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a blind man. No one had to negotiate with him. No one had to convince him that he was blind. He was born blind. He knew he was blind. The little girl outside the toy store. She was blind. She knew she was blind. No one had to tell her she was blind. But this man, this reporter, had to humbly receive what he was hearing that night. He had to believe that he was in that condition. It wasn't as obvious to him. It wasn't as clear to him that he was spiritually blind and in need. And that's why it's so hard, or it's been so hard as we've seen, for Jesus to reach the spiritual leaders in the nation of Israel and much of the crowd. Because as it's been said, there are none so blind as those who won't see. Remember a few chapters ago, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. See, it's rooted in pride and my own awareness of the condition that I'm in, not wanting to believe that there's something wrong with me. You see, the problem isn't so much that people are spiritually blind per se. They are, don't get me wrong. The problem is that they think they can see. That's part of the problem. People in the world today, they think they have clarity 
about religion, about issues of absolute morality, about issues of truth. They think that they have it all together, or at least they think that they're a pretty good person. That's what a lot of people think, just like the religious leaders and much of the crowd. Difficult to explain to someone that they're in need of spiritual sight when they think they have it all together. Difficult to explain to someone that they're blind when they think, in fact, that they can see, when they think that they're fairly normal. Well, I'm fairly normal. Fine, if you need that sort of thing, but uh, I'm okay the way that I am. And that's the difficulty oftentimes. They try to convince someone that their vision is impaired when they think they're seeing just fine, thank you very much. And so that's why Jesus in the final six months of his three and a half year ministry has turned up the heat just a little bit. He's more direct chapter after chapter. And of course the response, interestingly enough, is more hostile, more belligerent on the part of the religious leaders. Go back to chapter 6 and you'll see this escalation. In chapter 6, we read that Jesus said he's the bread which came down from heaven. And their response, oh, isn't this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, of whose parents we know? How could he say he comes down from heaven? So Jesus took it a step further in chapter 7. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when they were doing that obvious ritual that pointed to the Messiah, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And there was a big debate, and they wanted to lay hands and arrest him. In fact, they sent the uh, temple guards to arrest him. But we know those guards were arrested by him. Remember afterwards, the religious leaders said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, because no man ever spoke like this man before. And then in chapter 8, he took it one step further as they probed and as they prodded and as they provoked him. He made the most clear declaration. Look, it's all over the place. You can't read the first eight chapters of the book of John and not see Jesus claim to be God all over the place. But at the end of chapter 8, it was the most obvious declaration when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him, drove him out of the temple. So like I say, here, down the stretch, things are really beginning to heat up in the life of Jesus. But even in the midst of the commotion and with everything going on, Jesus takes the time, as we saw two weeks ago, to minister to this blind man, to heal this blind man. A man that had been born blind now can see. People are having a hard time believing it. His nearsighted neighbors can't make heads or tails of the situation. Some are like, oh, that's him. And others are like, well, no, this is a man like him, but it's not really him. They're not sure what to do, so they do what probably a lot of people did in those times when they weren't sure. Verse 13, it says in John chapter 9, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay that opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Exactly how it always is with Jesus. Some beginning to believe. How can a man do signs like that, they said, if he's not from God? Remember Nicodemus, way back in John chapter 3. He said, we know you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do those signs except, what? 
God be with him. But then still others are like, well, no, he can't be from God. Because he's a, a Sabbath law or Sabbath tradition, we might say, breaker. So he can't be from God. And it's amazing how technicalities and small details can get between people instead of just watching God work. They can overshadow the power of God. They can come to the forefront of everything that's happening instead of God's movement in our lives and in our churches. The Pharisees exclusively wound up about their, and I want to emphasize their, Sabbath day traditions. Because it wasn't God's law that they were protecting. They were protecting their interpretation of the Sabbath law. They're so wound up about those things that they're ignoring the most important fact of all. That a blind man could now see. They should have been praising God for the miracle. Instead, they're doing research and they're investigating to see how they might undermine what had happened somehow, some way. It's fascinating to consider, though, that Jesus knew this was coming. He knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. Remember we said two weeks ago, Jesus varied his healing methods so that no one could say, well, that's how you heal someone, right? In some instances, he would just speak the word and they would be healed. In other instances, he might lay hands on someone and they would be healed. Two weeks ago, we saw he took clay and he put it over the blind man's eyes and he told him to wash and then he was healed. Did he need to use the clay? No, he didn't need to use the clay. So why did he use the clay? And think about this. Why did he use the clay in light of the fact that he knew that this would be a violation of their Sabbath day traditions? Right? You couldn't spit on the Sabbath day. I'm not making this up. You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on the dirt because it would sink into the sand and it would create a furrow and now you're plowing. Can't do that. That would be work. Don't hiss at me. I'm not making this up. You couldn't work with clay on the Sabbath day because you could build stuff with clay. That would constitute labor. I suppose that they found a kid with tinker toys. Can't do that either. There was all these rules you see that you wouldn't be able to do. Well, Jesus knew about those things. Jesus knew about their traditions. Listen, I'm telling you all throughout the Gospels, it was like he was trying to do it. I believe he was trying to do it. Can you imagine the disciples? They're waking up in the morning, and they're like, oh, no, it's the Sabbath day. He's going to do it again. I know he's going to do it again. We're going to get into trouble. He's going to do something to incite those religious leaders because the religious leaders, at the expense of what God's law was really trying to do, were redefining God's law, and Jesus was trying to send a message to them to let them know, you're skewing this. I didn't say these things. This is his law, by the way, and it was made for man, not for God, and they were skewing it in the wrong direction. And it happens. It happens today, does it not? Can you not end up in a church or in a religious system where it's more about tradition than relationship, where tradition trumps relationship? Churches can make that kind of a mistake. We have to be careful. We always have to be careful. That tradition doesn't get in the way of the word of God. 
Because it's easy. I can do it. You can do it. We can fall into that, well, that's the way we've always done things before. Now, I'm not saying you make changes just to make changes, but I'm saying God varies his methods. And we've got to be flexible, open to what he would do in our lives and in our church body. In 1903, there was a a Russian czar that noticed that there was a soldier guarding a place upon the grounds of the Kremlin for no apparent reason. So he went up to that soldier and said, "Uh, why are you guarding this place? He said, I don't know, captain told me to be here. And so he went to the captain and said, well, why is he standing there? He said, written regulations. Okay. So he did a little bit of research, found out that 125 years before, Catherine the Great had planted a rose bush there. And she didn't want anyone trampling over the rose bush, so she ordered that a guard would stand posted on that spot 24-7. So 125 years later, here is this Russian sentry, this Russian guard, guarding a spot where a rose bush used to be. Wasn't there anymore. Classic. How we can make the mistake of doing things because that's just the way we've always done them. Now, I know that would never happen here, talking about other churches and that kind of thing, you know. It's not our folks, no way. And I know because I love you guys. And, and um, we have uh, gone through a lot of changes in the past year. And I believe God would have us continue to make some changes again, not just to change, but because we want to be ready and willing and flexible for what he would do in our lives, in this church body. And so I'm to announce to you this morning that it's quick. It's right around the corner. That in two weeks, we're going to two services. Now, the reason that we're going to two services, we don't control what God does. Okay? God brings the increase. I don't. You don't. We have nothing to do with it. All we're saying by offering up two services is that, Lord, we're willing to help facilitate that process if you want to grow this church. And we've seen this church grow in a mighty way, not just in numbers, but in the hearts of the people here, without any shadow of a doubt. And we'll never be ready to go to two services. Isn't that the truth? We'll never think we're ready for it. But we just have to do it when God says. And he's telling us that this is what we need to do. So you can look at it one of two ways. You can say, well, that kind of throws me off because you know what? That means we're not going to have a 10 o'clock service. We figured out that we need to have two hours in between services because I don't want to say, all right, it's over. Everyone get out and move your cars out of the way so that the next service can get in. <laughs> so we're going to have a 9 o'clock service and we're going to have an 11 o'clock service. And in part, the reason that we're doing this is because we're hoping that God might stir up some of you. Not all of you. For some of you, it's all you can do just to get here. Some of you are here on your uh, work break, from, for your, your lunch break from work. I, I understand that. I understand how that works. Or you got this going on and you got grandkids at home. I understand. But that's why we're having this servant day today. We're having it because God may stir some of you up. We're concerned along that we're trying to build this church and we feel like God wants to do things here, but we want to minister to families. And we feel like we can't minister to families if people want to be in service and they don't want to serve. So one of the reasons we're going to two services is so you can come to service at either time and you can serve in the other service if you choose to. Okay, that's up to you. So we're going to leave that. It's in God's hands. I'm not asking you to do a single thing. 
I'm not asking you to do anything. If you want to check out Servant Day today, walk in there, get information, pray. Don't make any commitments if you don't want to, unless God speaks to your heart to make any commitments. The only position that's taken in Servant Day, my wife and I talked about it, is pastor's wife. That position has been taken. But all the other positions are open. <laughs> I know that was no big disappointment. I just thought I'd throw that out there. So if you want to check it out afterwards, believe me, I believe that this is for you that you would come and find out what is available for you that you can be a part of. You ask the guys that were in there working on the fellowship hall, sweating and grinding to get that done. You ask the worship team that was here yesterday doing rehearsal. You know, you ask the folks working in the kitchen to prepare for women's study on Wednesday nights, and they'll tell you. They love it. They really enjoy it. So pray. Maybe God would stir you up right now. Maybe he would speak to your heart. Okay? God bless you guys. Well, back to the text here. As the Pharisees continue their inquiry, they're going to go straight to the source. Verse 17, it says, Then they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So remember, there's two sides of the argument. You got one side saying he's from God, right? And the other side is saying, no, he's not from God. Well, this formerly blind man weighs in, and he says essentially he's from God, right? Because if he's a prophet, he has to be from God. But, verse 18, the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Maybe Jesus hired a con man. Maybe they know that their argument about the Sabbath is weak. You know, in saying, well, he can't be from God because he's a Sabbath tradition breaker. Maybe they know that that's weak. Because why are they continuing to do research here? Why are they investigating if, in fact, this man was actually blind and was cured of his blindness? If the simple fact that he broke their Sabbath day tradition would rule out that he was from God, why are they continuing to look into this? They must know that there's something to this, or at least they're afraid that there's something to this. And so they're going to try to find someone who can discredit this man's testimony. And until then, they're going to stick to their guns. They're going to continue in their belief that no miracle occurred here. Until, end of verse 18, they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. That's kind of funny. Now, at first glance, you might go, Whoa, that's weak. Why not give Jesus the glory? Your son told you what happened, undoubtedly. And they plead the fifth. But before you judge, you might want to think about the fact that, uh, well, there was probably a very good reason. Not saying justified, just a good reason. Look what it says. His parents said these things because what? They feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, that is, the Messiah, if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents asked, he is of age, asked him. In those days, being kicked out of the synagogue was a serious deal. You know, in the United States of America in 2012, you show up to church and someone looks at you cross-eyed or they don't like the way you dress or whatever and they kick you out of the church, so what? 87 churches within 10 miles of here doesn't make any difference. But in those days, it was a serious deal. 
it would have been the equivalent of being excommunicated. Not just excommunicated from a spiritual place to meet or a, a place to discuss spiritual things, but excommunication from your whole livelihood. Your entire family structure would have been linked in to the synagogue. So it would have been a huge deal. You being kicked out of the synagogue meant your family would have shunned you and that you would have been an outcast. Last week, Pastor Bill was here. Uh, Pastor Bill and I went to Nepal several years ago, and we were teaching in the Bible colleges there. And even though in the capital city of Nepal, the locals call it Kathmandu, we say Kathmandu, but it's Kathmandu, in the capital city, there's about a million people there. But if you take a car and you go about an hour outside of town, everything is a small village. And it looks like what the ancient world would have looked like. There's one place to pump your water. There's one place to get bread. There's one place to get meat. Now, if you are a Hindu and you become a Christian in a place that is totally dominated by Hinduism, all of a sudden you have nowhere to get meat. You have nowhere to get bread. You have nowhere to get water. You don't have a job tomorrow and you can't see your family. That is the price that is paid. That is a price, similar price that this man would have paid. That is the price still today that some people pay in some parts of the world for choosing to come to Jesus Christ. That's a price that only a true believer would make. That's a price that this formerly blind man's parents were unwilling to pay. But this man, this blind man, who now can see, well, now he's willing. And you'll notice the progression in him as we go, that he grows in faith and in boldness as the questions continue, it says, So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. It's almost like, just tell us what we want to hear already. That it wasn't him who did anything. Just give God the glory. This man is a Sabbath law breaker. Well, he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I know. One thing. It's interesting how we were upstairs praying ahead of time, and some of the guys, for whatever reason, just started thanking God for removing fears and doubts. You're someone here this morning that sometimes struggles with doubt. You're not alone. You can be born again. You can have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and at times, doubts can creep in. It happens to almost everyone, if not everyone. And you know what? When someone tries to undermine your faith, when tr someone tries to come in and question and uproot and cast doubt upon what you believe, you don't have to answer their questions. You don't have to know the answers to all the world's questions. I went down that road several years ago where I started studying everything I could to try to defend my faith, and all I realized was I would never know it all, so I stopped. But there's one thing I know, one thing. It's the only thing you really need to know. He said that though I was blind, now I see. And that's all it takes. It doesn't take some sophisticated, clever argument in order to combat what people say. It's been said that a man with an experience 
is never at the mercy of a man who only has an argument. You're always going to run into people that will try and trip you up intellectually, or that will try and outmaneuver you logically, or that are even leaps and bounds ahead of you doctrinally. But you, like this man, can always just revert back to that one thing you know. Though I was blind, now I see. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pam and Eddie were over at uh, our house for dinner. We were hanging out. You may not know this, but Pam is a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz in biology, which basically means that she's smarter than all of us. You know, and I have just a little bit of interest in biology, not like that much, uh, because of the whole creation and evolution debate down throughout the years. It's neat today because of the advances in biology, because you can look under a microscope, because they know DNA is there. A lot of Christians go into biology now because they believe, because of the complexity that's found in life, they know it had to have come from a designer, a creator. But it was interesting because I asked Pam, because you know at UC Santa Cruz, however, there aren't many Christians in the biology grad, uh, graduate department there, not many at all. She's the lone light there. And I asked her, what is the big, you know, they know you're a Christian, what's the big objection they throw out at you? And it was funny because it was just the opposite of what I just said. She said, oh yeah, they see the complexity in life and they say, well, then there couldn't be a creator because no way he would make it that complex. That if there was a creator, he would streamline and simplify life. Unbelievable. It just goes to show you that no matter what we said, they jumped on our bandwagon. They're like, hey, good point, creationists. We agree with you and we're going to use that against you. It just goes to show you, you can't win the argument. And you don't need to win the argument. I guarantee you Pam wins the argument because I know Pam. And Pam just shrugs it off and smiles and it kills them that they can't change her mind because she has a testimony that she knows is real. Someone once said that the work of God always speaks louder than the skepticism of man. Listen, listen. Nobody can refute a personal testimony. What God has done in you, what God has done for you, what God has done through you, in spite of you, no one can refute. Not the smartest people on the planet, not the most religious people of the day, they can't refute your testimony. You can always fall back and talk to them about your testimony. They couldn't refute this man's testimony. They went back to it again, verse 26. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? You wonder if at this point he's starting to get tired of answering this question. This is now the fourth time that they've asked him how his eyes were open. Now, let's keep in mind, this is a man who was blind and now can see. There's so much in the world that he would like to go see right about now. And they're wasting his time asking him the same questions over and over and over again. And I'm thinking at this point, he's like, you know what, excommunication or no excommunication, I'm tired of these questions. So I'm just going to get even more bold in how I respond to these questions. So it says, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. You want to hear it again? Could you imagine? These are 
Think about who he's talking to. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Do you need to hear it again? How many times do I have to keep telling you? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. Do you detect just a note of sarcasm there? By chance. You also want to become his disciples? He's getting more bold as he goes. God did me a wonderful favor years ago in my life. And if you stop this morning and you consider, you might come to the conclusion he's done you that same wonderful favor. That years ago, when I was first just barely starting to walk with the Lord in my mid-20s, that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so we're like, whoa, this is like a story from ancient days, huh, Pastor? God brought a man into my life who was an irritant, an antagonist, sent to undermine and uproot and cast doubt and question everything I believed. And because my testimony wasn't very well developed at that point in my life, I really didn't have a leg to stand on. I really didn't know why I believed what I believed. And I'm not talking about some intellectual defense of the faith. I'm saying I hadn't spent enough time with God to be able to let this man know my testimony of what he had done in my life, of the wonderful things I had seen him do. It forced me to spend time with God. It forced me to hang out with him so that I could defend my faith, so that I could give him a reason for the hope that lied within me. That's what God did. I believe that was on purpose. My, my faith grew, and I became more bold in my witness because I started hanging out with God more so that I could explain to people why I loved God. It's a wonderful thing. This guy right here, you don't want to be arguing with this guy. This is a guy who just minutes before could not see, and he hadn't been able to see his whole life. You're not going to win an argument with that guy. He knows what happened to him. He knows that he was blind, and now he, was, he could see, and no one could change his mind about what Jesus had done. In fact, the more they argue with him, the more they expose themselves in his mind. Wow, this is showing me clearly that you're not from God and that Jesus is because I know he healed me, and you're trying to deny that he did. Pretty clear in his mind. You'll notice he says that again. That was the point there in verse 27 where he said, do you also want to become his disciples? Clearly he is what? Identifying himself with Jesus Christ at this point. They can recognize it as well. Because it says in verse 28, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, why, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. You don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes? Um, thinking he's from God. It's a marvelous thing that you guys can't figure that out. And here's his rationale. Pretty solid here as we continue. His rationale from someone who had never read the Old Testament, right? This is pre-Braille. We're talking about someone who had never attended one of the Jewish rabbinical schools. Look what he says. He says, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Amen. Says the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Case closed. Dr. William Cheselden is the first one credited with performing the surgical procedure 
in a, in a case of a full recovery of blindness in the world. In the year 1728, 1,700 years of medical advances later. And you want to know where this guy's from? They keep asking him how. And it's almost like he flips it around and says, no, you tell me how. How did he do it? I was blind, now I see. You tell me how he did that. The great religious leaders, experts in the law, revered by the masses, respected by the crowds, and they are losing a theological debate to a man who had been begging at the temple his entire life. And so, not so surprisingly, it says, they answered and said to him, verse 34, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. And this is sad because what I realize is I, you, all of us are capable of this kind of attitude at times. We are. Are you teaching me? Are you teaching us? We don't ever want to get to the place where we're not teachable anymore. I don't care if someone's been saved for five minutes. God could use them to say something to us that would stick. So important. We were in a prayer meeting on Thursday night, and Mike, our worship leader, was praying. And Mike, he's been walking with the Lord longer than I have. Been walking with the Lord with, or with the Lord longer than most of the people in this room. He started praying, and he said, "You know, Lord, we've been going through the Book of John on Sunday mornings, and I've seen these verses over and over and over again. It's like I'm reading them for the first time." And it's sad to me when we get to a place where that's not our attitude anymore. Where I think I know everything. Oh yeah, I've already been through the New Testament with Chuck Smith back in 1985. Don't need to do that anymore. Or I've read it before. Yeah, I got that chapter. Read that. Where things of God aren't fresh to us anymore. Where they don't inspire and challenge us and excite us. Because I think I know everything. Because I think I've been there, done that. Sad when that's the case. Maybe God would restart your engine this morning for the things he wants to teach you. Now, what's also sad, and, well, at least you would think it was sad on the surface, but maybe it's not so sad, is the excommunication of this man. Although I'm not so sure he's not better off in some ways, okay? Being outside of the fold of these religious leaders so that he doesn't feel tempted to try and live in two different worlds. I know it's cliche, but you've heard it before, right? One foot in the world and one foot out of the world kind of thing. And I just wonder if maybe you're here this morning and you've been cast out, so to speak. Or guess what? You're growing in your witness. You're becoming more bold. And eventually you may, in fact, be cast out from the old crew, from the friends that you used to roll with back in the day. That's a process that almost every Christian goes through at one time or another. And I don't know that it's all that bad. It is undeniably painful. But I'm not so sure it isn't in a way spiritually helpful for you and for me. Because look at, as we continue, because this is, the story's not over. This is my favorite part of the story. It says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he found him. The men of the temple threw him out 
but the Lord of the temple searched him out. So listen, you make a stand for Christ and it results in some sort of excommunication from the old crew. The girls don't invite you to the club anymore. The fellas don't invite you to the reunion in Vegas anymore. You get defriended from Facebook. Hey, listen. <laughs> the Lord of the temple, he will search you out. He's got a call for you, and he's got a place for you. Where do you suppose this blind man went? He was excommunicated. Where do you suppose he went? I have no idea. No idea. But you know what he could have done? This is pure speculation. You know what he could have done? He could have walked with the Lord. The Lord had 12 disciples, but he had a, a bunch of others. There was the 12, and then there was a bunch of others, right? He could have gone, you know what? Why do I want this old life anyway? I don't know if he did that, but I know that you can do that. I know that you can say, you know what? I don't want this old life anyway. I'm just going to walk with the Lord from now on. He will find you, just like he did this man. And he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And if salvation was any more complex than that, then there would be commentary after that. I'm not saying salvation is easy. It is a forever commitment. It is to say, Lord, you are Lord of my life, which means ruler. I'm placing you above everyone else. I'm going to place my trust that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead three days later for my sins. But it's as simple as, Lord, I believe. Isn't that wonderful? Lord, I believe. Because then Jesus received worship from him. If he wasn't ready to worship him at that point, he would have said, no, 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 don't worship me. You're not a Christian. You're not born again. You don't have the spirit of God. No, at that point in time, he received worship. Wonderful story. Well, in some ways, it's wonderful. In some ways, it's kind of sad. As Philip Yancey once wrote, we began a tragic tale of one man's blindness, now ends as a surreal tale of everyone else's blindness. Take a look. This is where we started this morning. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Ouch. The obvious interpretation, again, we come back to where we started, that some people are spiritually blind, and Jesus would suggest here that one of the reasons they're still blind is because they think they can see. Is there a condition of spiritual blindness? Sure, of course there is. But is it not in part self-induced by pride? I think so. You are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And so those that are so blind, none are more so than the ones who won't see. Pride's a killer. It gets in the way. An unbeliever takes it, runs right over the cross of Christ into hell. A believer sometimes misses out on God's highest. I know I do. Because I think, I got this, Lord. I got this. And I don't seek him. I don't go to him. That same prayer meeting I was talking about the other night, I learned something that I should have learned. I'm embarrassed. I'm not really. Because, I mean, I just learn every day. But, I mean, it's just amazing how long it takes me to figure stuff out. How about you? 
And I'm in this prayer meeting, and we're praying and praying, and we're seeking the Lord about a decision that we had to make. You ever done that? You're like, I'm going to set aside some time. It's either A or B. I'm not sure, but I want to seek the Lord. Lord, what is it, A or B? And we're praying, and we're praying, and we're praying, and we're praying. And we're a couple hours into prayer, and it's like it doesn't even matter whether it's A or B. It matters that I seek him in humility, that he has that place in my life, that I came to him, that he knows, that I know, that I love him, that there's intimacy there. I can have a difficult decision or difficult thing I have to handle in my life. i got to sit down with someone and share the truth and love with them. And I'm, I'm either going to do it this way or that way. And I'm, if I'm with God, I can do A or B. Probably doesn't make any difference because he's with me. I cannot have God with me. It could be A through Z. doesn't make any difference. It's going to fall flat because I'm not walking in intimacy with him. Jesus says here, because you say we see, therefore your sin remains. I don't know. Yeah, my eyes are open. We are open. But why do we sing those songs, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Remember that song? Or open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Remember that one? To reach out and touch him and say that we love him. Why do we sing, God, open our eyes, if our eyes have already been opened? Because pride, I think, sometimes causes us to squint just a little bit. And we have to open back up to him and realize that I need him, that I can't do it without him. Because I think I can see, oftentimes I'm blind, because I think I can do it without God. Simple lesson. Simple lesson. Christians, you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years, or you've been walking with the Lord for two months. Simple lesson. If you think you can see, you might want to go back and ask him about it. The better approach is to go, I just don't know what to do. I'm going to go to God, I'm going to seek him, and I'm going to let him show me the way. I'm going to let him light my path. He is the light of the world after all. Amen? Lord, we thank you and we pray.